All right. Um, turn to First Thessalonians chapter four. We are going to just read through the Bible today. But in our in the back of our heads, we should have everything we remembered from last week. Which I thought about just reprinting the outline from last week, but then I thought, oh man, you're gonna have like like eight pages of stuff. And but then I picked up Pastor Bruzik's outline, and I realized, oh, that wouldn't have been so bad, I guess. That was a, yeah, I was like, holy smokes, made me feel a lot better. I only give you, I mean, I give you three sheets. I'm still trying to get it to two, but it's like I quote things, and that's, that's right. Yeah, Pastor Music has way more spaces, so maybe it's the same amount of stuff. All right, well, um, just uh, in case you weren't here last week, the... Uh, what we went over last week was the kind of the religious and the cultural context of Thessalonica. And mainly that was because in the first uh, three chapters, Paul makes reference to afflictions, persecutions, and sufferings. And, you know, the question when you read these is like, you know, why is this happening? And, uh, you know, as we read it, we might have a tendency to kind of kind of be existential about this, about like their own like depression, emotional state. However, uh, it was probably a lot more concrete in terms of actual, like, physical harm and uh, social oster- uh, uh, exclusion, ostracizing. Thank you. Um, because uh, as Paul was preaching in Thessalonica, there was a, a rub between what he was preaching and kind of what was socially acceptable. So, um, yeah, remember, so in the back of our heads we should remember specifically the cults of Dionysus and Cabrius, and then I think that's all we're going to get through today. So next week would be the cult of the Caesar would be the next thing that would kind of come in through our heads. So as Paul finishes up chapter 3, he finishes with this very encouraging thing, um, chapter 3, 11 through 13, with this benediction. Now may God, our Father himself, and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase, abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So there's like a distinct kind of finishing at this point. And uh, so Paul's done his dealio about claim, first of all, encouraging, claiming kind of his, his worth to these people, and then um, uh, basically finishing up there so that he can now begin his kind of instruction, uh, which is, gets really practical now. So as we read chapters 4 and 5, these are going to be, we have to think very concretely in the background. Why is Paul saying these things? Because there is a, a kind of a mere reading that you could see or read. Uh, at one of the pastors' conference, we had this Jewish rabbi, I think I mentioned him, and he, uh, he says, don't read the black on your page. The, the art of, of biblical interpretation or reading is reading the white on the page. You know, stuff kind of in between. The little rabbi saying... Which, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds pretty interesting. So, I like to pretend. Read between the lines, although usually that's a somewhat of a, a derogatory, like, hey, you're, yeah. That's right. Okay, here we go. First Thessalonians 4, 1 through 2. And uh, what we are, so Paul gets really specific, saying, finally, so now he's getting to the meat of the bones. Uh, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. So we ask and urge you. The word urge is a very highly emotive response. Pleading. Please. Uh, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. So you walk. Walking is a word in the Bible that is it's a very important. It's, it's a life word, as you live, you could say, or live your life. In fact, so it's peripateo, which means walk around. 
And this is a very interesting uh, verse because in the, the verbiage, in the wordage, in the Lord Jesus, so in Christ, when you think of in Christ or in the Lord Jesus, what do you, what do you normally think about? What does that mean? Because it's very important here now. Maybe we don't think anything. I don't know. Okay, good job. Baptized into Christ. Do I actually write that down? I think I maybe let the cat out of the bag here. Oh, yeah, it's baptismal reference. Yeah, there's a couple theories where it's actually a baptismal reference. Paul's actually drawing upon what we see. So in Romans chapter 6, for those of us who remember our small catechism, um, walk, uh, I'm sorry, in the ESV it says walk in the newness of life. So you've been baptized into Christ that you might rise and walk in the newness of life. In Christ, peripateo. So it's the same kind of language going on here. And the reason why I bring that up is because uh, Paul is really demonstrating that if you believe in God, you, your, your public life demonstrates that belief. Which goes back to what we talked about last week when we saw that video where, uh, based on that video, there's that question, if people only had your life as the only example to look at, just like, the Thessalonians only had Paul's life to look at. And they were asked the question, has Jesus raised from the dead? What would they say? Would they be able to say yes? Okay? And this is what Paul's getting at then. Because Paul's saying, in order to answer this question, you have to live a life. You have to live in a way that actually says this. And so that's where he's getting at. Because that's why he uses the word walk. Walk is very important. In the ancient, so it's, it's, it's actually... Uh, echoed in chapter or verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So, we're going to get to some maybe uncomfortable things here in the next couple weeks because it becomes painfully obvious that it, Christians have a very uh, simple directive. Uh, Live like Jesus. Um, and and I'll, I'll raise the question here in a little bit. Okay, and which goes to the end of chapter or uh, verse 1. I keep on saying chapter. You live this way. Why do you live this way? Not because you just believe, but you have a motivation. And what is your motivation at the end of verse 1 or in the middle of verse 1? Please, God. We as Lutherans often don't like to talk about that because we might confuse that with works righteousness. However, Paul's already set the stage. You are in Christ. You're already saved. You're, this is, however, you live your life in order to please God. Now, Paul doesn't leave the lesson on like as hanging. Like, oh, well, what should I do, Paul? He's, he's going to give examples right now. So it's not like, you leave here today and you say, I'm supposed to please God, but what should I do? No, I mean, God tells you what to do. And by the Holy Spirit, oh, I read this in chapter, well, uh, which in, in verse 8, Paul says, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, so, you live God in concert with the Holy Spirit I'm sorry, you, you live the life of faith in concert with the Holy Spirit to please God. That is part of our motivation as Christians. And I don't know if we necessarily speak about it specifically in that way. Because we often talk about how God's pleased with us, you know, even though we're sinners. And that might kind of subconsciously say to ourselves, well, it doesn't matter what we do. But... Well, it just says pleases, so I'm just reading what the Bible says. Okay, so you made a great distinction. This is very good. Yep. But that doesn't, they don't discount each other. So I think that's a perfect example. So you're speaking from God's perspective. 
uh, as my child. I love my child unconditionally. But boy, it's really nice when he listens and obeys. <laughs> Why? Not because it makes me feel good, but, well, I'm, I'm sorry. Carnally, it does make me feel good. But oftentimes, when you're, okay, so, personal example. <sighs> cigarette lighter, have I talked about the cigarette lighter with you guys? Okay, so, old, old stuff here. I, this is probably the most extreme. My parents tell me, don't, don't, well, first of all, cars don't have cigarette lighters really anymore, but, uh, push the cigarette lighter, pull it out, it's nice and gold, and, I mean, orange, and, ooh, it's just so enticing for me. My parents say, don't touch it. Don't touch it, or else you will. Usually I get spanked, I think. I got spanked a lot when I was a kid. So, okay. So, when I don't touch it, I'm, I'm pleasing my parents, right? Now, is my mom and dad, like, do they feel good about all this? Well, maybe, but why, why are they pleased by me obeying their voice? I think it varies for my own sake. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things where God's pleased with us, not in the way that it makes him feel good. Although, you know, maybe it does. I don't know. It doesn't really say in the Bible, but, um, I mean, in terms of his feelings. Uh, but he is pleased. He's happy. He's good. This is great. So um, that is something that we think about in terms of like, so when we uh, uh, do these things now with a clear conscience, which is a whole like another Bible study, because as we stand before God as forgiven, now some people don't believe that they're forgiven. That means they have a bad conscience. But if you believe you are forgiven, that means agree with God uh, and you actually live it, then you are free from any kind of pressure and coercion to do these things. And thus, you know by doing these things, God is pleased with you. Now, of course, we always associate God pleasing, being pleased with us with what now? And this is directly against the, uh, the, the words in Paul here. When, I please my, when, my, when my children please my parents, what do I do? Oh, I have joy, but what do I do for them? I mean, not every parent does, but I do. I reward them, yes. Is there any promise of reward in these verses? No. Okay, so we say, God, I've done everything you've asked, and why is this happening to me? Okay, read Thessalonians slowly, because already in verse 6, Paul is saying, you received this word in great affliction. In uh, chapter 2, you're suffering. In chapter 3, you've been persecuted. He doesn't say that's like, he doesn't say that's not part of the deal. That is, that's part of it. So, so as we please God, we aren't, so this is something there, because God, we've already been freed. We've already received what we are seeking, and that is what? Our salvation. The salvation, our relationship with God, and obviously afflictions, Persecution, sufferings does not negate that. All right. All right. So, um, but that pleasing aspect of God is very important for us, especially as we um, are, are afflicted, suffer, and persecuted. Because Paul's encouraging them to what? Keep going. Keep living this way. Even though you are experiencing pain. It's pleasing to God. Krista. Well, this is what we're going to get at. Uh, when you say compromise, well, no. That, that simple answer is no, but what do you mean by compromise? Right. No. No, exactly. Nope. Uh, God doesn't compromise. Um, now, God does suffer, case in point, Old Testament. Is it cool that Abraham had two wives? Is it cool, when I say cool, was it, was it something that God wanted? Well, no, because God created Adam and Eve, and you know, uh, Jesus reiterates that in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. However, God does 
kind of suffer through those things and can use them for his glory. And sometimes we kind of confuse that, right, as God compromising. But God is actually not compromising. He's working through this. And oftentimes that's, that's, like a, that's actually a timing issue. When I say timing, I mean, I mean, it could be generations. Who knows? And I mean, actually, we do see that in the Bible, right? So God doesn't compromise, but he does suffer through these things. Yes, Donna. Yes, exactly. God is definitely patient and long-suffering. Right. Yep. And you don't um, want them to think that it's acceptable, but at the same time, um, to be patient and long-suffering is very important because you know that they'll be learning as they go, as they get older. Okay, so that's exactly right. So, so Don, you know, Donna's right. I mean, so as a, a, let's go back to being a parent or just, you know, being a, even a child, thinking about your own life as you live, you know, in relation to your parents, is that as a parent, you know, okay, so another personal example, I'm not going to make this too intimate except for myself because I've learned from my mistakes, um, is, uh, uh, you know, um, sticking your hand in the cookie jar. No one's looking. Yeah. We have this, like, yellow cookie jar with, like, an orange flower-ish thing around there. It's kind of popular. I, I don't know what kind of glass that is, though. It's, like, made out of glass. It's not quite translucent. It's, anyways, from, like, the 70s. I've seen those. I've seen those lying around and, like, yeah. Um, anyways, so uh, we had a cookie jar. You know, I don't know, I, whatever kind of cookies, homemade cookies. And so when no one's looking, bam. But of course, parents know, right? I mean, if you're playing nice and loud, all of a sudden you're quiet. <laughs> your parents find out, I mean, you know it, right? And so, bam, I get disciplined. Now, I go back and I do it again because I'm thinking, you know, there's cost-benefit cost analysis. If I get yelled at, eh, it's probably, it's probably worth it. If I get spanked, ugh, I, don't know if I, I don't know if that's worth it. So the thing is, though, right? So as a parent, you can either say, my child is just, you know, bound for, you know, juvenile, juvenile detention centers. Or you can be patient and long-suffering and continually discipline. And, and, then, and then sometimes, you know, you can just, you know, you kind of work it out, right? Where, like, you know, I, I'm sure I wore my parents down eventually, and I got a cookie without getting in trouble, even though they probably didn't want me to have a cookie. So, you know, you're patient and suffering because through this time, I eventually, I mean, I eventually learned, right? For the most part, yes, for the most part. Yes, I would say I've learned because I don't eat all the cookies now. Oh yeah, well I think that's part of pastoral care. And so I think this goes back to what Paul is about to begin. And we briefly mentioned it last week, how Paul has these such encouraging words for the faithful in Thessalonica. And then now these instructions that deal with sexual immorality. Okay? Because Paul is actually saying, well here, let's just take a look. So he's already talked about this from verse 1. Um, and then he reiterates that in verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So for some reason, this is not like a uh, closed issue for the church in Thessalonica. But at the same time, his words in the first three chapters are very encouraging and very pastoral. So Donna, when you say if pastors need to be long-suffering and patient, I would say the case, right here, case in point. Because oftentimes, especially as the sexual, uh, sexual relations become a lot more politicized now, um, the, the church has a, 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 you know, now we have to figure out how we're going to deal with this. Because what was kind of presumed in the past is no longer presumed now in terms of lifestyle.
And so we have to kind of figure out, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to care for the outsider, in a sense? Well, and then care for our own, too. Um, so I think, I think it's very kind of apropos or, or very current, Thessalonians. So, um, so what does he deal with? First, uh, chapters, or, uh, verse 3 through 8. So what comes next deals specifically with the Thessalonians' holiness. And one quick word about holiness is I'm presuming that you already know that people aren't made holy by the works they do, but because God has made them holy. Remember, they are in Jesus Christ, so they are holy ones. And since they are made holy by God through Jesus Christ, they are to live holy lives in a specific way. And for some reason, in this church, Paul, Paul needs to talk about abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, why would Paul write this? What is he making reference to? This is where last week's discussion comes to the forefront. You remember the discussion last week about the cults of Dionysus and Cabreus. These were kind of public religious ceremonies that people participated in, and they often had these kind of nocturnal raves where people would say, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to church. I'm going to the rave, and in the rave, I'm going to drink a lot of wine and dance and who knows what. Probably engage in uh, promiscuous uh, sex, basically. Uh, not, not necessarily. It's not, it's not part of the ceremony, but the, the presumption and the stories that have been referenced kind of leads to it. I, whether it happens all the time, I don't know, but it is something that did happen. So... So, you know, so we have this in the background. This is part of the community in which the Thessalonians live in. And Paul realizes that this isn't the way that uh, Christians live. So he has to give this instruction. All right, so, um, okay, so, but what is meant by sexual immorality? Well, first is that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Uh, so the, his own body is inclusive. So it would be one's own body, I guess, is how we would kind of inclusively write this. It's not like Paul's only writing to men. Um, although, although one's own body, I think, uh, it, does anyone have any footnote or different translation about how that was translated? This has been something going on for like 1,800 years because the word for body is not like body. It's not, it's not sarcus, which is a Greek word. Holly? Yep. Right. The word is vessel. That's kind of how it's normally used. But vessel can be used in kind of idiomatic ways, if you know what I mean. Okay. Cabreus. Remember what like the symbol was for Cabreus? Yeah, right, the phallic symbol. So if men are listening to this, they got to control his vessel, if you know what I mean. Now it's normally applied to women, vessel being a receptor, which would be, yep, her. I mean, there's a variety of idioms that we can use. I'll just say the uterus. <laughs> Speaking of parents, you know, it's one of those things like, where do you teach your children to reference these things, you know? And I've chosen the scientific. We don't say vessel or your organ or, yeah. Okay. Anyways, that's one of the ways you can translate it. Another way you can translate it, which I think is, is probably the worst way to translate it, is in reference to men taking uh, his wife. And the reason why I think that's worse is because that plays on kind of the typical way of how women were seen in Greek, Greco-Roman times back then. And we'll actually maybe talk about this a little bit, is that women were, you know, property. Even though, like, there was very high-standing women in public life, and people, you know, women had a lot of um, uh, economic rights and certain, well, I shouldn't even say rights, but, you know, they, they could do a lot, you know, a lot of things. They could do things. When it comes to marriage and relationships, 
women were often seen as, as property. So Paul saying that, and, and, and the reason why, so taking, uh, I think it, as maybe Holly said this, but uh, how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor. Yeah, I don't think that fits the context. Because, for a variety of reasons. One is, okay, is Paul only talking to men up to this point? No. And all of a sudden he switches. That doesn't really make sense. Second, of the men who would be listening, even within those men, marriage back then was a, uh, was it a love relationship? No, no, it was mainly a transaction between families. So it was somewhat of a, a so, so, social and an economic transaction. So that wouldn't even apply to this anyways, because most men weren't just taking wives for like their own thing. So it, it, it just doesn't really, it doesn't really make sense. It would, it would only apply to like, like those dudes over there, a couple of dudes over there. So Paul's talking to everybody, and then, oh yeah, hey, you two over there. It could happen, but it just doesn't really quite make sense. So I, I would say that Paul's talking to the whole people, men and women, in the context of this kind of cultural milieu behind them that deals with kind of sexual ethics that are, are, are outside the bounds of the Bible. So, now when he talks about controlling one's body, though, that's not uncommon for the Greco-Roman world. As, we, uh, uh, as you remember last week, some of the doctrines that were articulated were very similar sounding to Christianity. A resurrection, the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the ascension, uh, you know, so, so a lot of these things. So it wouldn't be surprising that there would also be some form of uh, sexual restraint. However, so there's a, yeah, uh, this Rufus guy, he's been quoted before by me, but um, so he, he insists on the importance of self-control, but he does it in a way to preserve the dignity of the individual. So it deals with the consequences of the person's life. But, but what is Paul saying? So he, he's actually not interested in the same vein as Rufus. And, and actually, I get down to this at the end of the year. Paul's dealing with defrauding others. So when he talks about um, that each would, would control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do, do not know God, he's actually going against this understanding of, of property rights because if adultery happens, and it does happen in the Greco-Roman world, and that would be grounds for divorce, the main reason why it was so, t- like, so upsetting was that the man was publicly offended because his property, in a sense, had been stolen or transgressed. In fact, uh, there's a poem here, or uh, not a poem, but like this uh, letter writing and I forgot the guy's name, and it, but it's, you could read it and say, oh man, this guy loved his wife because he's so sorrowful over the affair. <laughs> or you very well could read it that he's so upset because his, his, his property has been transgressed. So um, I would say, though, because based on what we know about holiness and honor in the writings of Paul, especially Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 11, we understand that the man and the women... It's not the, the woman belongs to the man, but man and women, what? Belong to each other. First, belong, yes, Donna. First, be, but belonging to Christ, and then belonging to each other. So we got the triangle of love going on. So um, that, that's very important for us. So as Paul is, is talking to these people, he, he's, he's, he's uplifting this notion that God has, has uh, you know, brought them into his family, and that men and women in marriage have this mutual uh, love and respect of one another, which is, you know, which is abnormal for this time. It doesn't say it doesn't happen. It's just that it's, that's not typical. Um, now, with respect to extramarital affairs in the Greco-Roman society, so not only do you have Rufus who says, yeah, you should control your body, although we might qualify what that means for him. Uh, within Greco-Roman society, especially within the elite, extramarital relations, whether it be you know, uh, premarital or homosexual, heterosexual, all this stuff, was 
it, it was well documented. Uh, Kirby Bruzek made reference to this play, I, Claudius, right? Yeah, right. Um, uh, you know, whether, you know, it's exactly like that, you know, but it's, it's well documented. Even within, all the way up through to the Caesars, where uh, there's this awful quote. It could be from Claudius. Where, as he engages in, in this, these extramarital affairs, he says to the woman that, like, he, uh, I have every right to slit your throat. I mean, it's awful, right? So, I mean, so this, this happens. Obviously, I mean, I'm the, the guy that's working at the, I don't know, the blacksmith stand down in the market. You know, he's probably not going to say those awful words. But this, uh, yeah, so marriage fidelity and sex out marriage is just kind of, was common and part of life. And Paul, so, is saying, nope, that is not what we do. But he upholds, unfortunately, it's, it's something that he's already told them, as he says. I already told you this. Don't you remember my instruction? And unfortunately, we don't know what that is, right? He's, he's, so uh, we're basing this on other parts of the Bible that Paul's teachings. So it would go back to, um, as you walk in unity with Christ, you walk in unity with one another. And that relationship with one another is based on kind of sacrificial love, the love of Jesus. And so... Um, Sex now becomes a, a, a symbol of this love, but also this symbol of love and service towards one another. It, it radically changes how people understand sex. It, it's very theological. Krista. I have a question. Do you think that one of these days the homosexual um, uh, pressure will be so strong that uh, it will invade the churches? Oh, well, yeah, I think it's invading it right now yeah, in Thessalonica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thessalonica. So, yeah, oh, yeah, well, it's already invading the churches in terms of, you know, different mainline denominations. Um, and that's where I think Paul, so this goes back to this patience and suffering aspect. Paul is saying, uh, your sex life actually pleases God. You know, we don't normally think about it. We don't, I mean, I don't think about God when, you know, that's going on. So, um, but anyways, you know, uh, Paul's saying, hey, this actually does. So this actually, this actually deals with our public life now and our public debate about this. Because oftentimes the discussion is, uh, you know, what does it matter to you? How would I do, you know, behind the closed doors? Okay. Uh, to the pagan, that might work. But for the Christian, that doesn't work. Because, yeah, it doesn't affect me, but it affects you know, how one is, you know, God is pleased with you or not. So as we talk to Christians, that's one thing. And this is where Paul says, he's not talking about what you say to outsiders here. What you say to outsiders is actually the life you live in. Which is, goes back to, I think, what we kind of finished is like how the church has kind of lost its moral grounding because outsiders see what? Divorce, extramarital affairs, especially by very public preachers, uh, uh, um, uh, pedophilia. I mean, come on. There's no, there's, the church really has got nothing going for itself right now. It's just words. And so uh, that's why Paul, going back to this, is saying, you're holy, you live holy. Your lot, the world only has your life to look at in terms of to know if Jesus was raised from the dead. Especially now, because it's not like he can go down the corner bookstore and buy a Bible. So, so Paul's saying, hey, your body is very public. Especially as you engage in these, you know, if you were engaging in these raves. Your body is very public. Um, okay. We did not talk in a straight line, but so hopefully you understand. Question? Yes. Right. 
Right. Yep, that, well that's great. So, okay, so this goes, so the preposition is very important, in. And so this goes with what? what where have we already in, encountered the word in? In Christ. So, um, but Paul, this, uh, I think we talked about this. So Paul, in a sense, when he's talking to the Thessalonians, is that God is, is like lo locatedness. God's picking this person up out of the Gentile world and putting them in Christ. Part of that aspect is the family, right? These people who are now disassociating themselves with the religious cults, the civic life, and probably their families that participate in these aspects, they are literally moved into another spot or another place, another family. And that's why Paul you know, uses the word brethren, mother, father. I think we talked about that a few weeks ago, is that this goes along with this is that in holiness, this, it means this space. And this space is defined precisely by Jesus. And Jesus, in terms of sexual relations, is understood. So can now we have to, we're kind of pulling in text from Ephesians. Jesus and the church. The groom and the bride. Fidelity. Communion. Closeness. Uh, love, however you want to, you, you got to think about it. So what, what Paul is saying here is that uh, you're, you're, not, you're, not, you're not for this stuff, but you live in this, this stuff, in a sense. Or at least a, a, a progressive thing, where you might, you know, there's like a, like you get holier and holier and holier. Yeah. But in, so it's a locatedness. So we're all in the room. Actually, that, that's a real simple way to think about it. We're all in the room. Qualitative and quantity, we're all the same. Right? I mean, we're either in or we're out. Of the room, yes. Thank you. Very good. Um, and that, that's how holiness is, is discussed in this circumstance. So that, and that's really important, uh, just in general, to remember the word holiness or even sanctification. You know, All Saints was a few weeks ago. Saints, according to Lutheran doctrine, whether you are, you know, St. Paul or Shirley Ziegler, you're both saints. You're both holy. You both are, you know, you're in holiness. Shirley's not holier than Paul, St. Paul, and St. Paul's not holier than Shirley. However, St. Paul's a little closer. He's in the closer presence of God because he, you know, he's, he's dead. But, um, but that doesn't change the holiness because Shirley, in fact, because she's been baptized into Christ, stands in the presence of God. Uh, in Christ, always. I mean, that's all uh, how each one of us says. But it's a little, you know... It's hard to do that in the world because we don't really see it all the time. Okay, a little bit tangent there, but Krista. Uh, it, was, it was only just um, how is the church um, standing against political correctness? Okay, yeah, so um, political correctness, you mean just in terms of like what? That's kind of a, too, a little too general, be more specific. Yeah, it's, uh, oh, I, 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 Charlie just talked. Um, that there is a school and uh, they don't allow uh, Christians, uh, Christmas songs anymore. Right. You know, that was when an hour Yeah, right. Okay, so this, this goes back to uh, kind of the assumptions of our society. And, and within America, it's a little bit more complicated because our politicians historically have either been, you know, Christians, I mean, blatantly Christian, or at least friendly to Christians, you know, the kind of the presumption going on. So you would have town meetings that open up in a Christian prayer. You would have the, you know, president's inauguration that have like explicitly Christian prayers. However, in terms of the, le what, 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 what rules the United States though? So this goes in a little civic question. What rules the United States? The law, exactly. 
Well, hang on. What does the law say? And the law does not actually promote or ordain or, or uh, announce a Christian God. It's, yeah, it's, it's freedom you know, from the fact that we don't have a civic religion. So, if you have, uh, well, first of all, you have a vocal minority that holds you up to the law, or you have a vocal majority that just says, hey, what's your problem? We're still, you know, we're going to have Christmas songs. It's Christmas time. What's your deal? In the past, that wasn't really that big of a deal because everyone's like, yeah, of course, it's Christmas time. You know, you throw in the Hanukkah song for the, for the Jewish population in there. Right? Dreidel, 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 right? I mean, uh, how many, how, how many, I mean, I sang Hanukkah songs at my Christmas or my holiday or whatever we used to call it when I was a kid. Program. We just did. I mean, I didn't even think about it. I mean, I didn't think, like, I'm a Christian, I'm not going to sing Hanukkah songs. We just did it. Now I think about it in terms of, like, today, like, that's a little bit problematic. I wonder, I mean, like, what am I, what am I saying by singing Hanukkah songs? But, anyways, uh, you know, you'd have Rudolph, but you'd also have Silent Night. Then you would have, you know, Dreidel, Dreidel. I mean, you would have all these. But now, so today, I wouldn't say, so this is part of the issue about living in the United States. This is our law. This is how we live. But you have, you have every right, though, to say, I want to have a Christian prayer. However, as Carol said, law rules. And so when that judgment is, and that law is in the land, you either abide by it, or you say, I obey God, not man. And so, like, you know. I mean, right now, we don't have a lot of those questions or, or those scenarios in the United States still. Like, you know, my daughter's going to sing at Hawthorne Elementary School, and she's going to sing about reindeers and snow and wintry stuff. Okay, I mean, is she, like, celebrating, you know, the pagan winter ritual? No. Um, is it a little bit silly? Like, why else do you get together at Christmas time? Okay. You know, it's like the elephant in the room. I mean, especially at Hawthorne, Mil I mean, Hawthorne Elementary School, like eight out of ten people are Christians. Okay. So, but I mean, um, once the government dictates our, especially enters into our personal life and our religious life, then that's when we will have a big, big issue. And that could actually happen. In terms of like uh, within, with respect to the marriage laws, uh, not to get too scared or anything like that, because if you apply the pastoral care rule in your church, you're, you're, no one can touch you in terms of the law. But if you open up your church to public events, civic events, which could be weddings, and now you have, you know, two men show up that want to be married in your church. Now you have some issues going on. So, because you, you opened up your church to a, a, a wedding couple before, they're not part of your community, they rented it. Why can't we? Oh, they're Christians. Well, I'm Christians too. I'm a Christian too. Well, the thing is, though, but that's the thing. Like, so we, as a, uh, as a church, we have to be able to, we have to deal with it. And we have to change, and we have to be able to be willing to, uh, you know, suffer affliction and persecutions and sufferings. Because what's pleasing towards God? So, anyways, so, I mean, that, that's probably the most extreme. But, I mean, I think about it now. I'm like, we're, you know, I mean, we're not even, yeah, I mean, like, thank goodness, you know, we, I mean, well, thank goodness, or I don't know if it's thank goodness, because, you know, I meet, I meet uh, at the seminary some of these, like, uh, the Ethiopian Lutherans and, you know, some of the Lutherans from Kenya and Africa, you know, and it's like, oh, man, I mean, they, I mean, they got a, they're admirable. I want to be like them. But in order to be like them, <laughs> I got to do that. So we always say, thank God that we have great blessings in the United States. And, and to a certain extent, that's true. But we always usually say it because we don't want to suffer, right? <laughs> you know, so that's where it gets a little bit complicated. Oh, so political correctness. So anyways, so I think we have to delineate in our mind what we expect out of the law 
as a, as a kind of a Christian living in the United States and not just base it upon our past experience because our past experience has been dominated by just a kind of a Christian friendly uh, environment and now that's no longer the case and the law actually doesn't establish that. It doesn't establish a Christian friendly country. Right. That is, yeah, so you have an expectation. That's right. Anyways, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I think political, you know, yeah, you don't want to be mean to people. I mean, I, that's a part of, I, mean, I think part of the political correctness aspect is like, some people actually have some good points. I mean, some of the language you hear like back in the old days, is like, holy smokes, I, I can't believe people would talk that way. In terms of like how they reference, you know, ethnicities and genders. I'm like, you know, is that political correctness or is that just kind of, you know, being truthful? Like, maybe we shouldn't talk that way and that's okay. All right, anyways. Okay. All right. So, anyway, so we have here a... Uh, oh, so not like the Gentiles. So, verse 5, not like the Gentiles who do not know God. If we think about it in terms of the Pesanolaika situation, we are thinking about... It could actually be translated those Gentiles, you know. And it would not be Gentiles in general. And I think that's probably probably more pertinent because Paul's probably referencing those people who part you know, participate in these kind of you know sexual acts. Because obviously from the quote that I gave you, not everyone's participating in extramarital affairs, not everyone is, is participating in these kind of nocturnal initiation rites and raves. So a blanket statement uh, would probably be unfair by Paul. So I think it'd be it's referring those who participate in the religious cults and not Gentiles in general. Anyways, that's uh, just got to keep that in mind here. Now all this is based, uh, verses 6 through 8, this is based on something that we kind of take for granted, is that God is personally and intimately involved in the Thessalonian lives. We already we kind of presume that already. God actually cares about you, your life, and what you do with it. However, given this religious perspective in Thessalonica, that'd be kind of unusual because Dionysus doesn't really care about people, and people really don't care about Dionysus. They just want to make sure that the God is you know cool with them. I mean, so they're going to do this right so that you know. Famine doesn't happen, but there's not an intimate thing, much less that God is interested in bringing people together into a community. However, so we read this now, okay, uh, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So this is something, you know, Paul's making reference. This isn't between you and the other person, but this is between you and a whole bunch of other people. Uh, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. You know, the, the people of the religious cult would be like, what does God care what I do? Paul's saying, well, of course he cares. That's positive. I mean, so people, so that's very positive, right? God cares enough to show up when you're in trouble. But because he cares for you, He's also, you know, instructing you in, in to make sure that, you know, you don't touch the cigarette lighter. You know, I really want to. Donna. When I read this, I, I thought, you know, it says that um, the Lord is the avenger and all these things as he told you and, uh, and warned you about. Right. I had a feeling that um, the reason Paul doesn't have to deal with, um, dwell on all the sinful things that right. That's right. You know, yep. The condition that they're in. Right. You know, and then we could mention some people say, well, what is sin? Right. And I think these people really knew that, that sin was the disease, the condition that would produce all these evils that are in the world. And they, they were well aware of this. Right. That's right. So he says that they know that he is a danger and that they don't say he's one of them. 
That's right. So, yeah, so Paul, when he says God's an avenger, which, of course, you know, I'm not going to make any joke about the movie Avengers, but, um, yeah, he, he's, already, he's already reminding them of something they already know. And so this is something that's important for us as we deal with each other, but also outsiders, especially as, as we kind of make it specific with sexual immorality. People in the church, generally speaking, know this already. Generally speaking, though. Because now we have to figure out... And, and, but, I mean, so we'll get back to this in a second, though, because uh, when I hear God as an avenger, I might get a little nervous about sexual immorality. Because, um, well, so hang on for that one second. Be, but uh, in terms of, though, in the church, though, because... Um, uh, you know, people come to our, our church and say, I'd like to get married. And we say, fantastic, this is great. I, I'm, I love marriage. I'm so happy that you want to get married. Um, but we have a rule, and we'd like to have you come under our pastoral care. Because, you know, we don't, I mean, it'd be kind of weird if I married you and I didn't even know you, right? I mean, kind of weird. And for most people, they say, eh, I don't know if I like that idea. You know, it's a little too, little too intimate. But other people say, you know what, we, we, we are looking for a church. You know, I, this is something that's been important in the past. Most of the time, they haven't really stepped into a church since they were, whatever, 11, 10, 12. Um, and now they're in their late 20s. So the majority of their life, they lived outside the church. And... Fill out a form and, oh, they live at the same address. Hmm, interesting. So we talk about, I, I talk about it, I say, you know, hey, I notice you're living at the same address. Uh, and then I usually kind of say, I'm a pastor and I talk about uncomfortable things with a lot of different people, so I'm going to ask you this question. Are you having sex? Now, I, no one's ever been, like, greatly offended by that because they, you know, I wear this goofy collar, so they're, always, they're already kind of, like, you know, they're already expecting kind of unusual things from me. Uh, but when I talk to them, you know, Christians, we don't, we, 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 sex is, is within the marriage. They're like, really? I, I, two years ago, I had a couple who said, really? They were baptized. Uh, eventually the one girl kind of copped to it. Yeah, I knew that already. But the dude, now, again, guys aren't as, uh, they don't listen real well when they're junior hires anyways. So he had not really been in church since he was 12, and he's, he's, he's 20, he would have been 28 or 27, somewhere around there. Uh, yeah, so I gave him the benefit of the doubt, like he was really telling the truth. I'm like, yeah. They're like, huh. I said, you know, so you got to stop having sex. They're like, he's like, ooh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, I said, so I, you know, hey, listen, I understand. This is going to be weird. It's going to be hard. Um, but it's, you know, Let's see here. I, let's see. Let's say I've had this conversation with like six couples. Over half of them, to their word, have said, "We've we've kept our promise." The other two. One in particular came up to me and was. So this goes now to the segue about like what happens with female sex. Came up to me and said, "Pastor, I got to talk to you." And, you know, they confessed that they had sex. And I was like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll ask God for forgiveness and we'll keep moving on. Um, and they were a little surprised. Not, uh, it, so I said, are you surprised by my casualness of this? Like, this isn't a big deal? They're like, yeah. And I said, well, it is a big deal. But, you know, God is bigger than our sin. So I have great confidence in God's forgiveness. So that's why I treat it the way we did. And so they were, they were kind of surprised by that because um, they, you know, so they, God as an avenger, oh man, God's going to smoke me. God must not like me. Yeah, we already talked about parents, right? 
Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest dad out there? God, he's the heavenly father. The greatest dad never stops loving his children. He might be bummed out that you, you know, he might be bummed out you took the last cookie. He might be bummed out yes, you know, I mean, you pushed your dad or you punched your dad in the face. Um, he might be bummed out that you touched a cigarette lighter, but he never stops loving you. And so this discussion about you know this, the, the premarital sex is it's never outside the bounds of God's love. It, it's just simply reordering and getting yourself back in in line with God's love, mercy, and God's life. So, um, so as people come to me who say they are Christians and they've been in the church, Paul has been very encouraging for me because you know a little like in seminary. I remember some of them, my classmates were like, well, they should already know this. How can they not know this? Well, okay, I mean, Paul had to remind them. They should already know it, but Paul's still talking about it. So I think uh, it's very encouraging for me as a pastor here is that... So, so apparently there is, uh, you know, extramarital sex, premarital sex is happening, but that still never discounts, A, God's love, and also the, all the great words that he says about them. So I, I think I, I like this section a lot because, well, it's very practical for me. But um, rolling into this last little, uh, just we got to end, but uh, 9 through 12, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Okay, I mean, uh, this is a very positive note. He's talking about, hey, make sure you abstain from sexual immorality, you know, control yourself. And then, hey, you guys are doing great at brotherly love. So there is this uh, somewhat of a paradox. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm not explaining myself correctly, but you have this instruction where apparently at, on some level this extramarital sex is going on, but at the same time there's great, great love being demonstrated by this group. By this, um, so much so that Paul's just reminding them that the way they live uh, is is going to be evident to outsiders. So, um, you know, there's there's some interesting family language going on there. That's real helpful. Um, and then uh, the uh, live quiet. Where does it say here? Live quietly, mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. Live quietly, mind your own affairs means being private, but Paul at the same time says your life, your quote-unquote private life will be viewed by others. So the Christian life is actually never pr private. It's always on display. Um, we actually, we actually, I think I yeah, talked about that. But anyways, any last questions or anything? You didn't really... But, cool. Alright, so, so next week... Um, Today we talk a little bit about the religious cults in the background. Next week it will be about the civic, the, the, the Caesar religion and how that comes about and ramifications. So this actually goes with maybe our little discussion a little earlier about political correctness and the way we relate to our kind of government as Christians. And that might be, I don't want to say most offensive, but I think that goes against maybe some of our upbringing. You know, the notion of God bless America. What does that mean? You know, as Christians, how do we interpret that? Um, one nation under God. What exactly does that mean as Christians? The reason why I ask that is because these people in Rome believe that their country was ruled by the Son of God. <laughs> so, God and country were yeah, very mixed in Rome. So, okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.